Good morning. We're in the middle of a series looking at First uh, Peter, and as Travis mentioned, we're doing a couple things, doing a little differently. At 9 o'clock, there's a discussion facilitated by Randy and some others that meets right back there in the fellowship room in which you talk about things relating to your experience in the past. It's conversational. You don't have to study a lot to come, but in coming, you'd get to think about the passage and get to hear from others, and, and it's a great opportunity, so I want to highlight that. So what we do is you talk about that in that context, discuss it, and then we talk about the same passage, and that's what we're doing during this series, looking at uh, Peter's letter and encouraging his readers to live for God, which is where Peter falls in the beginning of chapter 4, he encourages them to abstain from the things that Greco-Roman society was passionate about. They really liked it. And Peter encourages them to to continue to abstain from some of these things that Greek culture was crazy about. Pleasures from which they, first century Christians typically abstained and were theater, with its risque performances. Chariot races, gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. The Christian lifestyle also condemned some of the pleasures that that Roman society liked. Um, temper, sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. Fact is that first century Christ, first century Romans viewed Christians as killjoys who lived Gloomy lives, devoid of pleasure. The attitudes that Christians kind of adopted towards Roman culture, combined with their refusal to burn incense to the emperor, got Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. They saw Christians as haters and traitors. Peter encouraged these Christians to continue to resist the pressure being brought upon them by culture. And in doing so, he deals with the do's and the don'ts of living for God. Look what it says. First Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's talk about living for God. Begin with the don'ts, and then we'll read the second part of this passage from verses 7 to 11, then we'll deal with the do's. Let's start with the don'ts. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We said this before, before you can treat a problem, you've got to accurately diagnose it. If you've got a medical condition, it's vital to understand the precise nature of the condition. You can't treat a condition that is not precisely and accurately diagnosed. And it's the same thing spiritual, So, I, which leads to a question. What's the problem? It's the problem. And we think of challenges to living the Christian life, challenges to living for God. What is the challenge? What is the thing? There's a couple of different ways one of verse is rendered. Now, I want you, I'm going to tell you, it's, we have the English 
English Standard Version that's in there, but I'm going to read from two versions. You see if you can find the difference between them. Let me. Here's what the New International Version says, and that's. It says, as a result, he does not live for the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's what it says. And then in the ESV, or the English Standard Version, here's the way it reads. So as to live for the rest of his life in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so we find two different things. One says evil human desires, and one says human passions. What's the problem? Is it evil human desires in particular? or human passions in general. Would you agree? That's a difference, isn't it? Whether we have to suppress or deal with evil human desires, or whether we have to deal with human passions. What is it that gets in the way of living for God? Um, desires in general, evil desires in particular, the word evil is inserted. It's not in the text. It's inserted because the writers, the interpreters of this passage who wrote the NIV said that really clarifies what this passage is trying to say, and I disagree. It doesn't talk about the problem being evil, human desires. It's not just about evil desires, but desires in general. The challenge with following Jesus is that he will frequently lead us on paths that are not pleasurable, where we don't get to have what we want to have or do what we want to do or feel what we want to feel. It's not just that we are not able to do bad things. It's we don't get to do some of the things we want to do, things that aren't necessarily bad. It's not just evil desires that we deal with, but human passions. And that's interesting. Jesus, as a model then, consistently chose to obey God, even though it meant suffering various kinds of trials. He obeyed God even though it meant moving towards pain and from pleasure. And I'm not saying feel great about that. I'm not saying smile, hey, great, we get to suffer. That's hypocritical. But it's sober to understand that if we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, he's going to lead us on paths that don't feel all that good. The problem is that if we don't understand that, we assume that he zigged and we zagged. So I'm walking on this path, and it doesn't feel good. I wonder why I'm wrong. You know, did, did I make a mistake, or did people live with me? What's the problem? The problem is maybe no one made a mistake. Maybe you're following Jesus. That's, what, that's where he walked. And if we walk in his steps, we'll experience the same thing. Jesus consistently, again, chose to obey God, even though it meant suffering various kinds of trials. In order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, Christians must arm themselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus armed himself with. And what Jesus armed himself with, if I'm going to follow the Father and do what he wants me to do, I've got to understand in some way that this is going to mean I'm going to walk on paths that I probably don't want to walk on. He armed himself with that understanding. And because he did, when he got to a place where he had to deal with difficult things, he didn't assume that something went wrong. He armed himself with an understanding that, okay, this doesn't feel good, but it, that doesn't mean it is not good. Would you agree? There's things we experience that don't feel good. And they don't feel good. In fact, they feel bad. Just because they don't feel good and they feel bad, that doesn't mean that they aren't good and that they are bad. The fact is, we're going to feel things that don't feel good. That doesn't mean those things aren't good. Understand what I mean? And again, don't smile about it. Get, I get to feel things that aren't good. Yeah, that's dissociative. That's fake. It's pretending. Um, when the path of Jesus leads us on diverts from pleasure and towards suffering, and this is what Peter is addressing in these readers, Will they follow him? And that's, I think, the question he puts to us as well. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased, has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, is that saying people in hospitals don't sin? I, I think the, the point he says is that suffering demonstrates the true nature of their resolve. If somebody is walking 
with God. And they come to a place where, as part of their following in his footsteps, they enter a situation because of their loyalty to him where they are suffering in the flesh. Now, what can you say about this person who's following Jesus and who is in a place where they are experiencing some things that don't feel that good? What you assume about this person is that they came to a place where the road went different ways. What would please me went that way. What God wills went that way. And if they are walking in the will of God and it's unpleasant, what this would determine is that they have ceased from sin because what sin is about is walking in a path that is pleasurable short-term. Short-term pleasure. That's the path that we are want, again, we want to walk on. God is encouraging, and Peter encouraging as well, is that we live in the light of eternity. There are paths that give short-term pleasure and long-term pain. Well, Peter is trying to get them to walk on a path that gives short-term pain and long-term pleasure. That's the path that Jesus walked on. Uh, Peter encourages, then, this type of thinking. The fact is that their willingness to suffer this way, and the people who Peter writes to are suffering, it demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin because if they weren't, they wouldn't be on the path that they're on. Do you understand what I'm saying? They already made the decision. And you know that somebody is willing to experience discomfort, at some point they're, they're pretty serious. They've resolved. Many in our day assume that following Christ leads to health, wealth, and earthly happiness. Peter is countering this belief. He's saying it's mistaken. Following in the footsteps of Jesus doesn't lead consistently to getting what we want. I mean, do we get what we want? Absolutely sometimes. I mean, the Patriots win every once in a while. You know, and that's a good thing. That's, except when they lose to the Chiefs. It's a bad thing. We're shame. The will of God and the wants of man... The will of God and the wants of man, wants of us, do not consistently coincide this side of eternity. I'm going to say that again. The will of God and our his will and our wants don't consistently coincide, at least on this side of eternity. Uh, Peter writes, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What is that? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Um, the, he talks about five don'ts that the Gentiles, the Gentile culture, really liked. They lived it up. Uh, Peter somewhat sar- sarcastically points out, you spent... Plenty of time doing this kind of stuff, you know. I mean, I mean, you've really, you've really, done, you've really followed this course, and so leave that behind. He's reasoning with them. He doesn't take up the big hammer, but he does reason with them. Been enough time. Let's live a different way. Um, first five items involve the unrestrained desires for sex, food, and drink. All those words have to do with. Sex, food, and drink, which are things that are not bad in and of themselves. But what it's talking about is the unrestrained, out of control, reckless pursuit of, the indulging of sex, food, and drink. That's what Peter throws the flag at. Um, Sensuality means any behavior lacking moral constraint. And it includes sexual acts, but acts of violence as well. Passions refers to human impulses. Um, Indulgence, drinking orgies, drinking parties, refer to excess acts of eating and drinking. These kind of things would have been practiced at some of the uh, the rites of different types of worship experience. They had. They, they worship Bacchus, the god of wine. And so when you worship Bacchus, I mean, you really did it up right, and so, um, or wrong, did it up wrong. Did I just say did it up right? That was that was bad, wasn't it? 
All five terms refer to practices that have in common, have this in common, a lack of self-control, out of control, pursuit, reckless abandon, put it into drive. I'm going to floor it. And that's where Romans lived. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. You know what the interesting thing about Roman society is? They had that philosophy, but on the other hand, a lot of people within the Roman Empire couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford to live by that type of philosophy, that there were some who were the elite in Roman society that actually had in their homes vomitoriums. And here's what a vomitorium is about. So if you're excessing, you know, in the way that they like to excess, and it came to a place that you need to get rid of some of the excess, you could go to the vomitorium. And that was a place that you went to to vomit. And so why would you want to vomit? So you get right back at it, you know. And then um, the problem was that those who were not the wealthy, they couldn't afford a type of lifestyle. That's why a lot of Romans, they looked at culture and they looked at this kind of philosophy. And then they looked at Jews and they said, look at that now. They don't worship zillion gods. They worship one god. And they live chaste lives. You know what? And this is what happened in Roman culture. About 10% of Roman culture was Jewish. And what started to happen, they started to look at Jews, and they started to look at this excess. And you know what they said? You know, these guys have a right. We worship all these gods. The gods are boneheads. You know, they're doing this, they're doing that. The gods are doing all the things that, you know. And look at these people. They are, you know what, that seems to be a better philosophy. That's what was happening. At the, at the time. And, and so they, they were starting to regard this type of thing. It talks of lawless idolatry. When they were worshipping some of the gods, lust, drunkenness, revelry, carousing, and idolatry characterized family religious celebrations. These trade guilds. So when you worked for a business, the business that you worked for would center on the worship of a particular god. So the thing that you do then is that you would offer sacrifices to the God that your business has sought to link with so that the God would allow your business to be prosperous. That's the way they felt about things. So we're going to have the annual festival. We're going to have our business trade guild meeting, and if I was the boss and you were my employees, I expect you all to be there. We're going to do what we need to do to make sure that whatever God we worship, Bacchus or whoever, is going to continue to bless us. So everybody's going to be there, right? And what we're going to do there, we're, we're going to do the things that God would have us do. Now, if you're a Christian, you're in a pickle. You're in a pickle. There's going to be some things that are going to happen there that that you're not going to want to do. Or maybe you want to do, but you are going to choose not to do. And when you choose not to be involved in it, guess what's going to happen? I mean, what's it with? What's it with? They won't join in. They join in. This is not just a killjoy thing. You know what? You know what's going to happen? You know the God that we worship. Now he's going to look at. Travis, who I always pick on, <laughs> Travis isn't joining in. And you know why we're going to have a low GNP this week? You know, because Travis didn't, he didn't join in the festival. So what's going to start to happen, we're going to start to look at Travis askew. Yeah. And that's what's happening. So that's why they are maligning Christians. It's, um, Peter most likely is addressing not just pointing out Gentiles, but these, I think Peter is writing to Jewish Christians, and they're getting on some heat from Gentiles. I think they're getting a lot of heat from Jews who are looking now at these Jewish Christians and saying, what's this about? Um, he's encouraging these Jewish Christians to resist sacred culture, not just secular, secular culture. I think the poll that Jewish Christians had the toughest time with was Jews, who had found a way to kind of be okay with society. They had come to a place of being an accepted religion, so they did not need to worship the emperor. 
when the emperor went through town, confessed that Caesar is Lord, and if you didn't confess, now it's not just confess privately. You have to, it was out loud. Confess that Caesar is Lord, and and if you were a Jew, you could abstain, and you wouldn't get blown up because. Judaism was an accepted religion within the Roman Empire, that you could not worship Caesar and not have your head handed to you. But if you were not a Jew but was a Christian, and there was a, then what would happen is, oh, Amber, she didn't raise her hand to Caesar. You know what that means she is? Since we worship Caesar as a god, what does it mean when you don't worship the god that culture espouses? We would call her an atheist. An atheist. She doesn't believe in the God. that, And because she doesn't believe in that God, you know what's going to happen? That God is going to get angry, and we're going to get tagged because Amber won't worship. That's what ends up happening. It's That's why they fall into it. Do you feel the pressure of that? Imagine what the pressure would feel like. It's not just live and let live. You're making choices and decisions that are putting my family at risk. And I'm going to let you know that's why these cultural influence maligned Christians. They were they were going to make it awful for the rest of them. Um, fellow Jews would try to pull Jewish Christians back into Judaism, away from the sufferings. I think what they'd say is you don't need to be extremists because Jews had found a way to kind of to please both sides. They were accepted by Roman society. And so, if you were a Jew, you could stay within Judaism and be accepted. Have a decent life. But if you went into Christianity as a Jew, you're going to be targeted, not just by Gentiles, but by Jews. You are persona non grata. You had no one really rooting for you. That'd be a tough thing, wouldn't it? Those are the people Peter's writing to. Those are the people. Cut off from their Jewish roots. Cut off from Gentile roots. You know what Peter says to them? Hang in there, man. Hang in there. Eternity's a long time. And you might have to sacrifice some things on this side of eternity to experience some other things on that side. That's Peter's point. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. Um, With respect to this, Peter writes, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The the response of individuals who were critical um, was dismay, disappointment, even anger. And some of us, you've experienced this when you've made decisions because of Christian commitment to not do something you used to do. I'm not talking about ways per speak, but anyways, what ended up happening is you didn't get the calls anymore. Or when the calls came, there wasn't the same degree of friendliness. Don't call him anymore. He doesn't do it. He doesn't, he won't run with us. And, it's a hard thing to experience. You know what I think? And, and if you say it's not hard, you're lying. All of us want to be included. I think it's a basic human desire, inclusion. And if you are actively excluded and not included, here's what I know. At some point, it is very difficult for you. Now, you might say, oh, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Lack of inclusion and the presence of exclusion, I don't think there's anything more painful than that. You know what we end up doing with that? We, that's why we end up becoming resentful. Because of the deep hurt experienced by being excluded or not included, become resentful or remorseful. We start to blame them, we start to blame ourselves, but if you put that root down where resentment and remorse, if you follow that root down, you know where it lands, lands to? Exclusion. Don't call Travis. Not anymore. Don't mess around with Amber. And you're going to hurt. And Jesus understands it. 
Jesus sympathizes with how that feels. He knows what it feels like to be excluded by neighbors, by family. And when you feel alone and abandoned, Jesus' sympathy is just what the doctor ordered. When we feel alone, you know what happens when we feel alone? We feel ashamed. If I am going to walk through the streets of my neighborhood, and I'm a Jewish Christian and you are Jews, you know what I'm going to expect? I'm going to expect, and if you're all, I'm going to walk by and, and you're going to go, man. Yeah, he wasn't at the trade guild meeting. And you know what shame is? Shame is the experience of disdain. Here's what shame looks like. Man, this is shame when you face this. And you know what we do when we feel ashamed? Ashamed is a way to try to deal with shame. Here's the face for ashamed. Now, if I'm going to get this from you, you know what I can do? I can do this. I can walk around and I can walk in the streets and I can, I can look away from you. And you know what I'm doing now? What am I protecting myself from? This. This. This is what being ashamed is about. It's the way to turn my face from this. Yeah, Jesus understands that. Um, the exclusivity of Christian's religion, refusal to take part, consider valid, to worship any of God but their own deeply wounded people was very seen as very objectionable. Um, again, they were branded as atheists. It was highly dangerous for even one segment of society to slight the gods whose wrath was ever to be feared. You get the weight of this? This isn't just about not being fun. This, this had teeth. This was difficult to deal with. It says, Peter writes, they will give an account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Before I go on, by the way, do you know what somebody needs who feels, who's ashamed? What does a person need who feels ashamed? Does this. Well, they could, they could get a bunch of money and that might kind of deal with it, but still the deep sense of shame would be there, even though they might dress well, drive good cars, or have nice jobs. Still that, you know what you need if, if you are, if you're afraid of shame? You know what you need? You need somebody to sit down in front of you that doesn't register disdain. You need somebody who, I'm looking for a word here. Do you understand the word I'm going to look for? It's the word that Jesus is really good at. You know what you're going to see? Sympathy. And if you feel ashamed, Jesus is the one who leans in. I know exactly how you feel. And you know what's going to happen when you're with someone who understands you? You don't feel so alone, do you? You don't feel so alone. You might be excluded by them, but you're not excluded by him. Him. You might not be included by them. You're not going to get disdain from him. Never. What are you going to get from him? Sympathy. He gets it. He understands. And that doesn't allow the tension to go away. It does make it a little more tolerable, doesn't it? When somebody understands. Uh, Peter notes when he talks about judgment that those who malign Christians will have to give an account of themselves. Accountability wasn't taught in pagan culture. They said, well, you die, that's it. You know, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and tomorrow you die, and that's it. Ball game, we all die. So why would you 
put a governor on behaviors when you're just going to die, and once you die, the game's over anyway. So why restrict something now when everybody's going to die eventually anyways? You know, so they didn't have a sense for life on the far side of the grave. And that's what Peter is introducing, that um, Peter's point is that death doesn't exempt people from judgment. There's going to be a judgment on the other side of the grave. And that's going to be a time where some of the choices that were made on this side are not going to look as good. Okay, let's do the math. I sacrificed eternity for 60 years of fun? Let's do the math here. Do the math. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Why? That's not good. That's not good. It doesn't balance. That's what Peter is saying. It's You don't get your best life now. Peter assures his readers that there is a judgment. Death doesn't exempt one, excuse them from having to give an account for what's done. He encourages them to believe that their best life isn't now, but it's in the future. This is part of what it means to live for God, and this is part of what it means to live by faith. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he, whoever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Then it goes on to talk about some individuals. Isn't your worship folder? Listen, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, they, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But well, the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. It says, these died in faith, not having received the things promised, having seen and greeted them from afar. They didn't receive the things promised. And in some churches, what would you assume if you hear? If they didn't receive the things promised, what was wrong? Something was wrong with their faith. Because again, if you faith, if you have enough faith, you get whatever you ask for, right? 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 And if you're not getting everything you ask for, what's wrong? Your faith, right? There was nothing defective about these people's faith. They died in faith. Their faith was fine, intact, but they still didn't receive the things promised. It goes on to say that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Um, We live in a time where it's assumed all this in heaven too. All this in heaven too. I get to have it all. I get to have everything I want now and heaven is the cherry on the cake, icing on the cake. And what Peter is trying to tell them, if you walk in Jesus' steps, you're not always going to get what you want. Um, Do you know what we live with? And C.S. Lewis called it. You might not have identified it when you kind of put your finger on the pulse of... Let me ask you. What do you think about your life? Honestly. You have what you want to have? You get to do what you want to do? You get to feel what you want to feel? Do you? I would imagine you don't. Not consistently. Sometimes, absolutely. All the time, no. Um, And that feeling that you get when you understand that, you know what that is? You might never have understood it. You know what that is? That sense of emptiness that you feel? Let me tell you what that is. That's homesickness. That's what that is. That's homesickness. That Dave Bryfogel doesn't feel anymore. Homesick. C.S. Lewis, here's what he said. There have been times when I think that we do not desire heaven. 
But more often I have found myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul, all the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. What's it? Heaven. Home. Tantalizing glimpses. Promises never quite fulfilled. Echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. C.S. Lewis talks about divine homesickness. The things that we aspire to are just little resonances of, of that. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he exists. He looks for that he rewards those who seek him. To live a Christian life means that we have to believe that at some point, if we resist something now, it'll be worth it then. That makes sense, right? Right? Um, living for God, let's talk about the don'ts quickly. Verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be long glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter gives four practical ways that his readers are to live out, live for God. And there are four things. Think rightly and be clear-minded so you can pray. Persist in a love for one another that covers sin. Be hospitable. Hospitable. <laughs> To fellow believers, without complaining, serve one another with gifts of grace you receive. Think rightly and be clear-minded so that you can pray. Be self-controlled and sober-minded is in contrast with a drunken state. You know, if somebody who's drunk isn't clear-minded or sober-minded, you don't think very well when you're loaded. Uh, impulse control is not great when, you, when you're drunk. And so what he's encouraging is to exercise some impulse control. Don't just opt for immediate gratification. Uh, the ability to inhibit an immediate response leads to a responsive rather than a reactive life. What Peter's trying to encourage away from is living life in a skid. You know, it's like to live life in a skid. You really can't respond to a skid, can you? You react to a skid. I'm going up, whoa, I'm going to whoa, you know, so... And life can be like that. React to the reaction, to the reaction, to the reaction. Whoa, I got a whoa, I got a whoa, I got a whoa, I got a... And what Peter talks about is a responsive life. Slow down, slow down, slow down. You're reacting to the reaction, to the reaction, to the reaction. Shh. Be still. Be still. Breathe. Breathe. That's what it means to be clear-minded. Right thinking and being clear-minded result in prayer. Again, you think, well, why do I need to be clear-minded? So I can make good decisions. And Peter says, be clear-minded and sober-minded for the sake of prayers. Here's what, and I think here's the, here's the point. It's what James says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your... Ah, what gets in the way of prayer? That you may spend what you get on your... Any idea what that would be when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you want on your... Ah, I wonder what that word is. You know what it says? Pleasures. Give me this because it's right. You know what the truth is if you're honest? Give me this because I want it. And what it indicates is that God will not answer your prayer and give you what you want. If it's just about, again, does that mean don't ask? Oh, ask. James is putting a caution in here. Some people think that prayer is a blank check. I can ask for anything. I mean, God's in it for it all, and I can get it all, all this in heaven too. And Peter says, no. No, this Jesus didn't do that. Again, remember the temptation in the wilderness? You hungry, Jesus? Well, yeah, it 
if you're connected with God, leverage that connection to get what you want. Remove the need. Turn this rock into bread. Jesus says, I'll stick with it because God's promises are real, even though my stomach is empty right now. I'm not going to assume that God exists to meet every whim of mine. That's what Jesus does in the wilderness. He clings to God's promises. And he listens to God even as he deals with a, I can't make that noise, you know, the way your stomach, the way your stomach is. Some of you, your stomach, just listen right now. And Jesus has two words in his ear. He has the word of the Father, I will be with you in the wilderness. That's one sound he hears. You know the other sound he hears? His stomach. That's different, isn't it? God says, I'll be with you. And the stomach says, hey, well, that might be well enough, but I'll tell you what, he's not giving us anything. not giving us what we need. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't assume that he was going to make God be his sugar daddy. He knew that God would be with him. And he lived confident of that in spite of evidence to the contrary. Again, it's okay to feel hungry. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Jesus understands it. He sympathizes with it. Don't fight it. You love your life? Life is just wonderful? No, it isn't. Well, i got to say that it is, because otherwise, what will will he do? Jesus understands. You be honest. Be honest. You know what, God? I don't like where I am right now. I don't like the way it feels. I live in a place and I'm, they're looking at me cross-eyed. You know what Jesus will say to that? I know exactly how that feels. Let's go to the Father together. Let's talk to him about that, huh? Now you talk to him. You're honest with him. God, I hate to go to work. Will you give me the strength that I need to be the person you want me to be? I just feel so isolated and alone. Jesus says, I know. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is persistent love that covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It says in Proverbs, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. So in the contract, love is opposed by hatred, stirring up decision, stirring up dissensions is the opposite of covering over wrongs. So love covers over a multitude of sins. What that's indicating is... Um, Persistent a love that doesn't inflame the problem. Somebody does something, says something, and you want to get tit for tat. You want to, they insulted, you're going to insult back. <laughs> and what Peter is saying, don't do that. Love covers over a multitude of sins. It doesn't stir up dissension. You know what Jesus did when he was reviled and threatened? He didn't do nothing. He didn't just Grin and bear it. He didn't do that. Didn't do that. That's nothing. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He appealed it to the throne of God. He said, God, you know what? Here it is. I'm going to put another thing on the docket. You're the one that's going to balance out just and unjust. I can't make justice happen. Here it is. I throw it up to you. That's not doing anything else. It might look like nothing. I might look and, wait, you're not even answering back? Come on! You're a loser. You're throwing it all away. And what Peter is saying, don't, no, don't, don't rise to the bait. Don't rise to the bait. Don't revile in return. Don't threaten. Don't go away and talk about them. You know what that does? That destroys community. Gossip is very dangerous. As far as relationship is concerned, the way I can destroy a relationship is by talking about someone. Because the thoughts of another person are the substance of relationship. And if I'm going to insert and talk down about somebody to you, you know what I'm doing? Actually, I am destroying your thoughts and your relationship with that person. That's why gossip and backbiting is so dangerous. Peter says, don't do it. And trust yourself to him who judges justly. Don't pretend that it doesn't hurt. Tell him it hurts. Understand, Jesus says, I know exactly what that feels like. Go to the Father. Here it is, Father. And Jesus is right there with you. He's not your defense attorney. He is your friend. Alongside, sympathizing with you. Come on, let's go to the Father together. 
I understand exactly what it's like. So now be honest with him. Speak freely with him. He already knows it. When you talk to God, don't say, oh, God, thank you for today. You don't like today. Well, maybe you do like today. That's okay. You can say to God, I like today, if you like today. If you don't, don't say that. Today's a work day. I don't like the job. Well, I'm supposed to know. Be real. Persistent love that covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable, hospitable to fellow believers without condemning. I think what Peter is about, be hospitable. They didn't have churches in the early church. You know what you did then? You opened up your home. And I think hospitable to one another. If somebody has been talking to you in the Christian community and they're going to meet in your home, okay, you can come over and you can come over and you can come over, but don't you dare enter into my place. So this is the way I can control who comes. And what Peter is saying, be hospitable to one another, even with those that you might have an issue with. For the purpose of worship, then be hospitable to fellow believers, um, even relationships that are strained. Finally, serve one another with the gifts of grace you've received. Serve one another. And it talks about speaking and serving. Uh, things that are associated with ministry. Uh, speak, and it says the very oracles of God. I'm going to say one thing real quick. I'm going to wrap this up. There's a, there's a movement where people claim to speak for God. God told me to tell you X. I saw it once where a minister was saying, he was at a funeral, said some really good things. He, you know, he had a decent thought, but then this is what he said. Um, and he talked to the guy, God wants me to tell you X. Because I was listening to the radio yesterday morning, and then this verse came on. And then I was walking around, and I heard a song, and this verse came on. And then last night, I was going to sleep, and the... And what he ended up saying is that he claimed to really be telling this guy what God wants to tell him. This is directly from God. That's really dangerous. It's really dangerous. God says things, but you can just say, here's what the Bible says. To to claim to have a word from God for someone, watch out. That happens a lot. A lot mm, people claiming, I've heard instances of it where the word didn't come true. God told me he was going to heal you. And the healing didn't come. And what do you think that person thinks went wrong? Their faith was wrong. No. You know what was wrong with that? The person they claimed to speak for God but wasn't. Again, so don't claim, don't make it personal. Say, here's what the, here's what the Bible says. Let's try to figure out how to apply it. But you understand what I'm saying? It's a different thing when you claim to be, this is what he's saying. Now again, refer to the Bible because that is the word of God. Here's what the Bible says. So we defer to it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. How does that apply to you? That's good. You understand what I mean? That's good. But to claim to be a direct, yeah, that's, that's a little bit dangerous. Um, serve one another with the gifts of grace. Um, there's a final verse we're going to sing. I'm going to look at this really quick. We're talking about Moses and in terms of somebody who we can follow. Um, it's, he was committed, it says, by faith and this is Hebrews 11. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Moses was committed. He was so committed that he was willing to endure persecution. That's pretty committed. Wouldn't you agree? Not only was he committed, he was consecrated. This is going to be three C's. Committed, consecrated, he considered the reproach of Christ of greater worth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Somebody who's consecrated is somebody who's willing to defer gratification. They're willing to really hold out. And so Moses was committed, he was consecrated, and he was courageous. He endured, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. So he was committed, consecrated, and courageous. And it says that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He had conscious contact with God. There's one or two ways. Here's a how. So we've talked about what his how. 
We tend to believe that if I am committed, consecrated, and courageous, I will experience conscious contact with God. If this, then that. You know what this verse says? That's not what it says. Moses endured because he saw him who was invisible. You know the way this works? Contact with God leads to being committed, consecrated, and courageous. It's not the other way around. It's not that correction leads to connection. Connection leads to correction. Conscious contact with God leads to being committed, leads to being consecrated, leads to being courageous. Do you want to be more committed? Consecrated? Courageous? You know what you do? Honestly, conscious contact with God. That's what we learn from this verse. Uh, worship team is going to come up. Living for God. We define it two ways, I think. Living for God. Longing for heaven. And loving on earth. Pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for your words and for the fact that they're recorded so that we can think along with them. We can listen in to what Peter tells these individuals, try to figure out how it applies to us. Um, Thank you for the reality of these writers who understood that we were going to experience things this side of eternity that are not exactly what we had hoped. You would have us live in the light of eternity. And all of us have a way to go. We get resentful and remorseful. And, and there's things that need to be corrected. We we put too much stake on this side. We, it causes us problems. We stumble. And you understand all of that. What you would have us to do is understand that it's contact with you. That's That's not... That's the means. We come to you, we experience the sympathy of the Son and the sovereign care of the Father helps us to breathe. And as we get to know that, it leads to being more committed, more consecrated, more courageous. Contact leads to those things. Would you help us to continue to look to you, to gaze at you, and to glance at the things we'd like to be like? So the connection would lead to correction. In Jesus' name, amen.